I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... So you have to be able to connect the purpose of what your mission is, the purpose of your organization, to the individual's purpose. And I think that's where we sort of miss the boat. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. What's Working in Washington? I'm your host, Mark Walsh. Today, our guest is Shara Roman. Shara is the CEO of the Silverine Group, founder of it, as a matter of fact, and also the author of a book called The Conscious Workplace. And yeah, her timing is, is exquisite because we all know how what workplaces are today is different than what workplaces used to be. And it's not just COVID. It's about younger men and women coming into the workplace with, with desires and aspirations and expectations that are decidedly different from what Mad Men was all about in the 60s and what IBM was all about in the 70s and what GM was all about in the 80s and what, oh, those internet companies were all about in the 90s and the 2000s. It's a new world. And folks today are looking for a conscious workplace where their goals and their personal aspirations are as important and as considered by management as just profits and earnings per share. So her perspective on what her clients are looking for and what people should be looking for in companies going forward is absolutely fascinating. I'm sure you'll find this conversation very educational. Welcome to the show. Nice to be here, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. All right, let's start with the organization first, yeah. the Silverine Group. When did you start it? What was the aha moment that made you say, this is the world needs this? And what does the organization do? Great. So lots of questions there. So we started. Yeah, I, in, I, I always stack them up. Yeah, you do. Yes, I do that. But it's easy when I do it to other people. Aha, so, all it. right. Back to your questions. I started the business in 2016, mm -hmm. which was, uh, you know, quite an interesting year, as uh, one one might remember. Uh, actually, February of 2016. And um, I started it after spending about 25 years in sort of corporate HR and culture transformation roles in many of uh, the organizations around the Beltway here, Fannie Mae, CGI. I was at a large trade association, worked at Visa. Um, but I saw an opportunity in our market to uh, really help small and mid-sized companies, uh, large companies too, but really that smaller and mid-sized companies across all industries build better workplaces, build workplaces where people could come and thrive and be themselves and really sort of work with the leadership teams, work with those organizations to assess their culture, to design their aspirational culture, and help them get from where they are today to where they want to be in the future. Sounds like it makes a lot of sense. And are your, corp are your clients typically medium to smaller organizations? Our clients are really all over the place. I would yeah. say sort of the bulk of our clients that uh, work with us sort of end to end for um, several years on, on culture work are more in that small to mid-sized space. But we also have very large clients um, that we might work with a business unit or we, we might do sort of a line of business. So we do, as I mentioned, the culture assessment and the design. But to bring your culture to life, there's a change management component, right? You've got to think about where are you from a mindset today? Where do you want to go? So we're working with leaders one-on-one -on -one, uh, through coaching. We're working with their leadership teams. We're working with groups. We're facilitating sessions. So with that kind of work, we do it with all sizes of companies. Have you worked with any not-for-profit or any NGOs or even parts of the local or federal government? 
Yeah, we work with a lot of um, associations, um, more so than nonprofits. We do work with some nonprofits. Yeah. We um, do work with the, the federal government as well. NGOs specifically, not yet. Yeah. Um, but really pretty much industry agnostic. We've worked in professional services, the tech space, some GovCons, um, you know, sort of engineering firms, some law firms. But really, wait, wait. Law yeah. firms have culture. Come on, that that can't be true. Yeah, they just want us to come in sometimes and talk about it. Maybe yeah. facilitate a session or two. I maybe shouldn't have said law firms yeah, as right. much because they're not. They have a different a different culture, a different breed. I yeah. think our most success has come sort of in the association space and then in the professional service. You know, sort of tech space where companies are sort of really trying to to build and create, and and they they're they're at an inflection point of trying to get to the next level. That's the voice of Shara Roman. She's the CEO of the Silverine Group. She's our guest today and what's working in Washington. We're going to touch on her new book, The Conscious Workplace, in a minute. But staying on culture, boy, uh, talk about a loaded word that seems to have sort of, it didn't erupt, uh, but it was always, I think, nodded to and not paid attention to. I went to business school with Jeff Skilling, who ran Enron, and they famously had, you know, a corporate credo statement carved into stone in their lobby which all of them ignored as, as is now they're all in prison. But this idea of having, you know, sort of a corporate statement and what, what we stand for and all that became kind of, a, in my opinion, a joke in, in a lot of people's minds over the 80s and 90s and kind of greed uh, mm-hmm. ruined that. So your timing seems to be on, on point. But are you finding that consciousness of culture by the leadership is easy to discern and then reinterpret for them and then try and bring down, or they typically know what they want to happen and you're more executional in permeating the culture around, or is it somewhere in between? Yeah, good question. And I think it's sort of a little bit of somewhere in between and all over the place at the same time in the sense that uh, you're right. Even today, there are a lot of companies that are very much like your Enrons where they have values and they'll sort of plaster things on their website, right? Not that we're really going into offices that much, but in offices if they have them. And I think CEOs and leaders want to believe that the values that they have stated and the culture that they have in their mind is what is being lived. But it often is defined in their lens as opposed to really sort of thinking about and asking the staff, the people that are working in your organization, how are you really experiencing that? And how does it come to life? Because if we think about what culture is in its simplest way, it's how we do things around here, right? It's how we behave, how we act, what are the rituals, what are the norms, how people are held accountable. So it's it's easy to say that I want to be innovative or I want to be collaborative disruptive or, or, or disruptive yeah, whatever the, yeah. or whatever the buzzword is. But it's really hard to actually do it and to get everyone to sort of focus on this is how we how we do it in a way that everyone can still be authentic, but that you're all moving and sort of rowing the boat in the same direction. There's a great story of a headmaster of Deerfield Academy, the, the prep school up in the Northeast uh, there for many, many, many years. I think Boynton was his name. And he used to say there are no rules at Deerfield until you break one which is, to me, the greatest implicit statement of we have culture and you should absorb it. And if you do, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you don't, you'll obviously sort of don't get it. But this idea of platitude culture not tripping down, which is, I think, I've sure have seen it a ton. I'm sure you have as yeah. well. Have things like Glassdoor and other kind of transparency platforms helped in getting the C-suite to stop looking at the world through the prism of their rose-colored glasses and realize they may not be doing what they're doing? 
They certainly have helped, and there's certainly been, um, you know, a plethora, sort of just an increase in surveying uh, staff, right, whether it's through pulse surveys or annual surveys or whatever. But um, so people, CEOs and other leaders are seeing the data, but what often will come through in the data can sometimes be taken very personally. Yes. Right? So one of the statements that's often asked, right, that we ask in in our survey and and that you'll see in many surveys is sort of a question around sort of trust of leadership. Yeah. You know, do you trust your manager? Do you trust your leader? Do you trust your senior leadership? And the trust in senior leadership number is quite low and is often sort of on, you know, is often sort of declining. Yeah. And that hits home very personally well, for should. people, I mean, right? In my opinion, it should. Of course it should. I mean, yeah. any any one of us reads that and we're sort of freaking out that what do you mean you don't trust How me? How dare you? Yeah. Does, does that mean you you think I'm stealing or does it think you do you think I'm lying? And really where that trust is uh, all about is are you really being transparent? Mm-hmm. You know, are you being honest in what you're saying? Because people know when we're pulling the wool over their eyes or we're holding back information and that trust is really around do I know you as a person? Do you know me as a person? Are you getting to are you asking me questions and and really getting to to know what motivates me, what drives me, what energizes me, who my family is? All those types of things that goes into that trust equation. Can I count on you? You know, if you say that you're not going to do layoffs, um, which leaders will kind of come out and make these big declarations, right? And then two weeks later or two months later, they're turning around and doing what they said they wouldn't do. That erodes trust. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that things can't change. Absolutely, things change. But you need to be able to then explain what's happening, right? And people at the end of the day need to be able to believe you. They need to be able to look at you in the eye and know that you care about them, that you care about their their growth, that you um, that you care about the business, you know, all those types of things. As Bill Clinton used to say, "I feel your pain," right? That's, yeah. That that empathy. Well, two questions on that. Yeah. Um, number one, uh, I assume COVID has changed the equation of what transparency means. Um, and number two, if you've had sort of hyper growth organizations where you've gone from twenty employees to hundreds of employees or maybe more, or you're to your point earlier, you're bought by a large organization. How does hypergrowth, what are the challenges of hypergrowth in keeping that relationship of transparency or that perception and that that delivery of transparency from the C-suite? But the first about COVID, how, how has that changed all this? I think, yeah, COVID has, has sort of really uh, thrown a number, right, um, uh, out there in the sense that not just about transparency, but about the whole workforce and employment equation. So what COVID did um, is that it allowed people to sort of really uh, recognize that work is not the only thing that makes the world go round, that actually sort of people and their relationships and uh, their families and their friends and all of that are really important. And so from from a, a commitment to work and sort of buying into, you know, you've got to come and sort of sell your soul, so to speak, to the company, that has really changed over over the last three years, right? We've seen our loved ones die. We've seen uh, we've we've been apart from people, and um, all of those sort of basic humanity uh, needs have have sort of really come to light, and that has created pressure uh, from the employment base on companies, on leaders, on employers to say, "Wait a second, here I own part of how we're going to do work together." And then in terms of scaling, you know, it really is about being intentional. It's being really um, purposeful and and sort of conscious about the type of culture you want, the type of people that you want, the type of work that you want to do, 
and really linking the purpose of your organization to the individual's purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk a lot about, oh, I'm a purpose-driven company, right? But if your purpose is, um, I don't know, uh, you know, building uh, space spaceships might be very exciting for person A, but that purpose may not and certainly does not translate to me, right? I couldn't quite care less. I mean, I like space. I think it's cool, but <laughs> it's not something I personally want to do. So you have to be able to connect the purpose of what your mission is, the purpose of your organization to the individual's purpose. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we sort of miss the boat as well. So when you're scaling, you want to really be able to think about that. And it's not to say that we want to hire all people who look alike and think alike, but that connectivity needs to be there. So that, Shara Roman, our guest today on What's Working in Washington, she's the CEO of the Silverine Group, that collision is what strikes me um, must be good for your consulting firm and probably good <laughs> for your book. Uh, because this idea, I mean, I've been engaged in a lot of hyper-growth technology companies in my career, and um, what we failed to pay enough attention to was we were just hiring a bunch of bros, right? Because they all looked like us and they were writing code and we were having fun and partying and all of the things that now are, you know, really being reassessed correctly. But the the perspective all of us brought was so tight, tight, tightly defined. And even people that showed up that didn't think that way kind of ended up acting that way because they felt that they probably had to. Yeah. So this idea of diversity of background, diversity of focus, diversity of passion, diversity of goals, diversity of personal life goals – that's usually good for an organization, but I think it's very wrenching for a company to go through that. I'm sure you're seeing that with your clients. For sure. Um, it, it is hard. It's, it's hard to um, step away from kind of what we know and what's brought us success and, uh, you know, people we feel comfortable with. Um, but the diversity piece is super important, right? Not just with all of the dimensions that you've mentioned, but, you know, you can layer on race and gender and um, sexuality and, and all of those elements because that's what makes us really rich. And yeah. that's what brings all those different ideas to the table. You know, I'm of Indian origin, but you can't necessarily categorize me with all, with everybody else of Indian origin. I happen to have been born there, but I grew up in India, I mean, in Nigeria and went to school in England and lived in Greece. And wow. I'm married to a Puerto Rican. Yeah, all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah. And so I bring all of those pieces into anything that I do in the conversation that I have. And that's why the diversity piece is, is really important. And um, I think as, as, as much as we can help illuminate that for leaders and they can see the data on what it means when, when, diverse, when organizations have diverse people or, or sort of diverse components happening in their organization, there's so much, um, you know, there's revenue growth, there's innovation, there's um, customer stickiness. There are all these um, positive outputs that, that emerge. Sounds like you just teed up our discussion on your book, The Conscious Workplace. We're going to take a break here on What's Working in Washington because that's the next part of our conversation. Her new book, The Conscious Workplace, with our guest, Shara Roman. Every week on What's Working in Washington, we talk to power players about innovation in the federal government and how business in the region is keeping us competitive. If you are a D.C. insider and want to know what leaders in other industries are talking about, we give you that insight. If you know someone we should be talking to on our show, let us know. We want perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. You can reach out through our website or through Twitter. 
and we love bringing those new voices to our audience. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back with What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. Again, we're excited to have in the studio with us, Shara Roman. She is the CEO of the Silverine Group and also the author of a recent well-received book called The Conscious Workplace. Boy, talk about a branding that is timely. And let's talk about that book. I think all books have a moment where the author has an aha event. And that man or woman says, there's a book in me or there's a book there or whatever. Did that happen to you with The Conscious Workplace? So... Kind of, sort of, uh, in the sense that I do uh, a fair amount of speaking, and oftentimes at the end of uh, a speaking event, people would say, do you have a book, or you know, is this written somewhere? And I'm like, go to my blog. So I started to think about that. Um, but I also have two Gen Z kids, now 19 and 17, and given the work that I do and the, the amount of time I have sort of spent in this space, I, I really felt that this was an opportunity to um, to write a book to really create a conversation around what can we be doing better because we have been talking about the same problems for decades for as long as I've been in in the workplace right we've been talking about low engagement we've been talking about um, you know turnover and and uh, not having women in leadership roles all of those things and um, I felt that if I could encapsulate some of the experiences that I had had, both sort of personally through research, uh, then through our, our client work, and you know, start a start a conversation, start a dialogue on how do we really create workplaces where everyone can thrive, especially with a lens to to my two kids and their generation and all the generations to come. So, what's been the response? Have you found it is striking a chord with people? Are there parts of it that seem to be more evocative than others? So. Um, you know, when you write a book, it's sort of like having a kid, right? And you don't want anyone to look at your kid and say they, they're ugly. So <laughs> I was a little anxious that I am pouring my heart and soul into this and I am sort of opening up in a yeah. way that I, I never really thought that I would. Uh, and it has been received really, really well. Right. I, uh, I've gotten uh, just lots of positive feedback from, from all types of people. You know, there's... Um, you know, in the book, there are certainly things we talk about that white, might make uh, white men in particular um, of a certain demographic feel uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Because they've been sort of in those leadership roles. They've sort of created some of the dynamic we're in. And I never want to be in a place where I'm making anyone feel uncomfortable. But I was a little anxious about that. But some of the most positive feedback I've received is from is from men, is from CEOs, I've received, I mean, it's been from all over, all walks wow. of life, right? All people, you know, women sort of have read it and they read it with the lens of, wow, everything you talk about, like what you've experienced, what other women experience, the case studies you talk about, we've experienced yeah. that, right? They've experienced um, sort of being belittled or uh, sort of not given opportunities, but not quite understanding why they weren't given those opportunities and sort of being able to sort of connect to other people's stories are, you know, what made them feel good. And then sort of talking about the future of why we need to change. You know, people have said, well, you've really laid that out really, really well. So it's funny because we've had some guests here in my in my career, seen a lot of, um, sadly, lack of transition 
and how much venture capital and uh, startup environments are aimed at white men. And the little tiny percentages that are gender diverse, demographically diverse, actually geography diverse as well, a famous sidebar quote, which you're, you're able to use in whatever you want, that about 66%, two-thirds of venture capital comes from and goes to 25 zip codes. Mm. So the wow. centrism of that, and you know, the zip codes start with nine and start with zero, so New York and, and the Bay Area. But this idea of centrism around people, white men, uh, bros, tech bros getting a lot of venture capital, um, it, it's bad for the technology industry. There, there's no question. So I'm engaged with a lot of institutions that are trying to, 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 to get that better. But let's talk about Gen Z. Wait, Gen Z? Okay, so Gen X is the one above them, right? So millennials are the ones above them. Okay, so Gen I... Zs are the 20, I can't do my math with, with, with years right now, but they're sort of the 24-year-olds and younger. Got it. So let me ask you about that crew, because in my experience and colleagues of mine, um, what we see consistently is that they enter the workplace with expectations that are often misaligned. They expect to get promoted quite rapidly. They expect to have a significant, I say they, I'm, I'm making a huge generalization, sure. but they, they expect to have a significant portion of sort of social impact and purpose and kind of meaning in, in their job. And life often doesn't reflect that. So are you seeing some of that collision or do you think I am over maybe miss misunderstanding what's going on and be frank because I, I i got no i got no pride of authorship i will be frank mark yeah. <laughs> if you haven't seen that in the last uh you know 15 20 minutes yeah. uh you you'll definitely see that a lot of what you're describing are the millennials okay who are the folks that are you know sort of 25 ish into 35. their 40s yeah. right uh and they've they've been around and have been in the workforce for a really long time and and yes they have i i think played a really instrumental role in shifting how we as organizations and leaders need to think about the workplace. The Gen Zs are sort of that younger generation. They're not fully in the workforce, but they are um, uh, mostly biracial, right? They're the, the kids mostly of Gen Xers, who is that small generation sandwiched between the millennials and the baby boomers. Yep. Uh, they are tech native, these Gen Zs. Yeah. So, um, and, and they are very, so you talked about sort of the social justice, the, 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 the social sort of impact piece. Absolutely, that is a Gen Z um, element. But the world has changed. So yes, I think as leaders, um, we need to recognize that people wanna, people do wanna advance. We've all wanted to advance. I think when I went into the workforce, perhaps when you went into the workforce, we didn't have the, the, the chops or the, the sort of the permission really to say, this is what I really want out of the workplace. It, at the end of the day, it's-, it's You're a, it, right there. It's a, it's a bargain, right? It's, yeah, it's, yeah, a, yeah. It's, a, it's an agreement. Like, hey, you come to work and here's all the cool things you'll get to do. And then I expect you in return to, you know, to, to think creatively and work collaboratively and, and do all these things. So I think they have shifted that paradigm. COVID has sort of layered upon that, right, as we've all now st sat back and said, like, think about the great resignation, all the women who've left the workforce. About to ask you about that. All, yeah. all the, 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 you know, older people of all generations have said, enough is enough. I'm retiring early. I'm quitting my job. Sidebar, my husband quit his job at the beginning of last year after 20 years, in a, almost 20 years in an association, 20 years in the Marine Corps. And hike the Appalachian Trail for seven months. Mazel right? Tov. Yeah. Exactly. So, but he's not alone. There are so, millions of people that are saying, I want to do something different. So we do have an opportunity right now to really redefine what our workplace needs to look like and how do we bring more empathy into the workplace? How do we really think about the people that work for us 
as actual people? Yeah. And how do we um, design workplaces that allow them to really thrive? And I'm not being all sort of sappy and, uh, you know, kumbaya. No, at the end of the day, we need to we need to make a profit. We need to be able to to have revenue and profit to, to be able to employ people and, you know, do all of that. I'm in, I'm a business owner myself. But there's a different way to do it. And the recipe yep. that we've followed for the last, you know, 50, 75 years is not the recipe to move forward with. Well said. Um, I To your point on sort of prior generations, I remember the first moment I realized that just because somebody was my boss didn't mean they were necessarily smarter than me or that they knew a lot more than me. Sometimes bosses are only one page ahead in the textbook, sometimes one page behind. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, uh, to your point, many uh, millenn- millennials and Gen Zers arrived with that with that knowledge yes. so so fantastic i'm glad they know that and keep in mind right they have google at their fingertips yeah so gen z yeah. was born tech native right yeah, they, yeah. they go searching for answers they don't so. go to their parents they don't go to their teachers they go they go they go to google yeah right who is their best friend good point um so they can f- really know that you're an idiot, so they can really you're know that yeah. you're an idiot. but the the other piece right about sort of leadership i, I think sort of back in the old days leaders were sort of groomed with you know best. Mm-hmm. You're going to learn all this stuff and you're in charge and you make the decisions. But if we sort of think about the fact that when you have a collective set of brains, you're always going to end up with a better answer yep. than one person or two people sitting in an ivory tower or sitting in their office trying to make a decision. And so it's actually quite a simple premise and not necessarily a novel idea, or it's not a new idea. It might be novel to actually deploy it in your organization. That's Shara Roman. She's the author of The Conscious Workplace. She's also the CEO of the Silverine Group, which is a consulting firm which focuses a lot on the things that you can read about in The Conscious Workplace, which we highly recommend you do. It makes a great gift. Shara, uh, here on What's Working in Washington, we we ask each of our guests a meta question at the end. And it is, if you ruled the world, everything, um, for some period of time where you could execute against this, what's a thing you would stop happening that you see that is rankling or a thing you would make start happen or start making happen uh, that you wish did? I would love for people to stop the divisiveness that exists in our world and recognize that as humans, all coexisting on this earth, this planet, we actually have more in common than we have different. And so let's embrace that and also uh, embrace sort of both the commonality and the differences. And um, the thing I would like for people to start doing is for leaders to sort of really step into that opportunity to be role models, to embrace shifting their mindset and facilitating more coming together versus a win-win, separate individualistic mentality. As somebody once said, from your lips to God's ears, (laughs) um, because I concur divisiveness is, is completely eating away at everything we're supposed to be good at as people. And it's not just in politics in the United States, it's everywhere. Uh, Shari, it's been great having you with us. Thank you so much for joining us on What's Working in Washington. My pleasure, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. The team behind What's Working in Washington is a great group. The executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Online content, Anna DeGraff. And that theme music you enjoy, performed by The Sunbathers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.